Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. If you were to ask, if you were to somehow approach my supervisees, and particularly my supervisees, I guess my students too, but particularly my, if, if you were to somehow contact some of my supervisees, people that I, you know, uh, new therapists that I'm supervising, if you were to talk to them and, and ask them in confidence what they disliked about me the most, there would probably be, you know, a pretty sizable list because I, I, you know, I have all my various flaws <laughs> and any flaw you have is likely to emerge in supervision. But one of them would be that I will rant often about confidentiality and about how to follow certain regulations and standards of care when it comes to uh, couples counseling, family counseling, family therapy. And what they would say is, well, you know, Kirk's always yelling at us about making sure that everyone signs the disclosure statement and never getting involved in the court and avoiding custody battles. And, uh, you know, uh, whenever there's uh, sort of different modalities of, you know, of family and couples and individual that we have to follow all these stupid rules and and the thing is, is that the reason why I'm annoying about it is because I am worried about everybody because I have read many cases and seen many cases firsthand of uh, therapists who make these mistakes and then end up getting in big trouble for it. And these, the instances in which you're going to get in trouble are rare. You could perhaps go your entire career without ever even having a complaint waged against you, let alone getting in a specific trouble like like um, the kinds of things that I rant and rave about in terms of this stuff. But but why take the chance when you can avoid it so easily? That's that's my whole thing. It's like if you just follow a certain set of very simple rules, you can avoid a huge amount of, of headache and annoyance and sleepless nights worrying about it. But it, honestly, whenever I talk with people who are getting sued or having a, a complaint waged against them, the the actual consequences aren't that big of a deal, which I'll get into later. But the the biggest con ninety nine point nine percent of the the toll it takes on a therapist is the waiting, the the shame, the wondering what's going to happen, and you know, just I, I have therapists, and I've been through it myself, where. You're worried that a complaint is going to happen. You're worried that a client is going to go to the state licensing board and complain about you. The complaint hasn't even happened yet, and you're just you're just worried they might do it, and that'll keep you up late at night worrying about things. There's just a, there's just a, a special place in our brain for the anxiety of a therapist who is worrying about a complaint. It's 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 very intense. I think it's because as therapists were all really dedicated to trying to make the world a better place and and we're very dedicated to trying to do well by our clients and when there is the risk of a of a lawsuit or a complaint it somehow it, it totally is antithetical to our life's mission the other thing is is that therapists in in my experience even experienced ones have a very loose grasp on ethics and legal issues and when they are engage in some kind of uh, complaint process or legal process, they feel very insecure about their knowledge and about what's going to happen. And so uh, that just raises their anxiety. 
So that's what I want to talk about today. I, I want to talk about a very common mistake of confidentiality that therapists will make that will land them in, in court or in a complaint hearing. Uh, this is uh, inspired by a case sent to me by my malpractice insurance. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, particularly if you're a patron, you know that I will get sent a newsletter. Maybe it's every month, every couple months, by my malpractice insurance, CNA, HBSO, who will send these cases and say, look about, you know, hey, therapist, read this case in which a therapist was successfully sued and learn from the mistakes, please, because if if you don't if you don't violate these things, then there will be less cases that we have to pay for, and then we can make more profits, essentially. Well, everyone wins if people read these newsletters. And whenever I read them, I think, man, I should talk about this on the podcast because there's so many little interesting details in here in this, in this real story in which a therapist got um, uh, had their license sanctioned, shall we say. Um, and you know, it, it, there's there's definite themes to these to these malpractice claims. They often involve a failure to have the right paperwork, a failure regarding not defining the client very well, and that's that's the one thing that I my supervisees will say that I rant and rave about is, uh, you know, a, a supervisee will present a case to me and they'll say. So, uh, you know, I'm so my client is a 14 year old and I've been meeting with the parents as well. And I'll say, so the 14 year old child is the client and they'll be, uh, they'll say yes. And I'll say, and you've been meeting with the parents. Is that right? Yes. And I'll say, and have you been providing any advice to the parents or any treatment to the parents regarding their parenting? And they'll say, uh, yeah. Then I'll say, well, why are you calling just the 14-year-old a client? The parents are our clients as well. And they'll look at me like, oh. And, and I'll talk about this, I don't know, once a month. And it, the, the reason why it takes a while or never for my supervisees to really get it is because the rest of the world doesn't operate this way. There's this really, really stupid culture, in, in, even in the field of family therapy, in which agencies particularly, and I'm generalizing here, of course, there are certain agencies I'm sure that are doing a better job than others. But in my experience, these mental service agencies, these, I don't know the exact term, but mental health agencies that are um, mainly Medicaid, medical coupon clients, will define the client as as the teenager or the, or the child, and the parents will come in for, and siblings will come in for, and maybe grandparents come in as well to family sessions, but the agency sees the child as the client and the other people as not the client. But if you're treating the parents or the grandparents or the siblings, then those people are also clients. And as systems thinkers, we're trained to consider the, we're, we're trained not to look at the identified patient as the problem. Usually in families, the person who is identified by the family as the client is is usually actually just the symptom bearer, as we call it, of the family system problem. So, as systems thinkers, we're 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 trained to look at the system as having a problem, and the system just identifies a scapegoat that they bring into the agency. And as family therapists, we're supposed to say, "Okay, well, let's look at the whole system here, and let's not blame one person for the family system problem." That perspective is is not always helpful, but but it often is. Believe me. 
And and for for whatever reason, agencies don't go along with this, mostly because the Medicaid insurance system is based on an individual-based model and doesn't recognize system thinking, which is a shame. But the point is, is that there, um, there's all these problems in our culture regarding defining who the client is. And if, if that was all that was happening in our field, then I guess it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But the problem is when you actually go to court, they will look at things differently. When you, when you go to, or you go to a, a state licensing board, they will actually start asking questions that are in line with what I'm saying, which is you have to uh, define the client properly and you have to have the proper paperwork and you um, have to th- consider a lot of risks involved in that. And so I'm going to go into all that as well. Um, also, a common theme to all these different malpractice cases that, that I talk about have to do with custody battles or submitting things to court or not consulting well or not having the right um, progress notes and stuff. So I'm going to go into that as well. All right. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. The content will probably be, I don't know, an hour or so. If you want to hear the full hour-long episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron and you'll get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes, including this one, in which we do deep dives into various different topics, not just uh, therapist-related topics, but all sorts of things. And also remember that when you become a patron, part of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, you patrons out there. Thanks for being a patron. Super, super cool of you. I think we have something like 600 patrons now, which is just overwhelmingly awesome. All right, let's get into this case here. All right, so first off, who are the clients? Well, we have a husband and wife who are going through marriage problems, and they hire a couples counselor to help them. And the uh, the counselor is a male counselor. So we have a husband, and we have a wife, and we have a male counselor, and the husband and wife are having marital problems. When for for whatever reason, and again, whenever I read these malpractice cases, they never they don't give me a, a lot of detail because they're trying to make it as concise as possible so that therapists will actually read it. But but it it mentions that the husband completed all the client intake forms and the husband paid for all the services, and the wife did not complete any of the paperwork. So right from the start, we have a problem. It's it's like husband and wife are coming into therapy. Why would you just have one person complete the paperwork and not the other person? Uh, just, you know, right off the bat, just massive mistake. Essentially, the the main ethical, ethical principle and licensing principle here is that before you engage in treatment, each person has to consent to treatment. Each person has to understand the disclosures, the necessary disclosures. They have to be given all those things in the disclosure statement. They have to be given your background, your qualifications, where to go if they have a complaint, your uh, confidentiality guidelines, your your duty to warn guidelines, your uh, policies regarding payment and all that kind of stuff. 
All those things need to be need to be given to everyone you're treating, not just the person in your head that you think is the client. And so what I suspect happened was that the husband was the one who was calling around. So usually it's just one one of the, you know, you have a husband and wife who are going through trouble. Usually one person is more interested in therapy than the other. And my guess is, is the husband. I don't know, but if I was to take a guess, that, that's it. So the husband was shopping around for therapists. The husband contacts this 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 male counselor and says, I'd like to hire you as, as a, as a, you know, couple's counselor. And the therapist sent the paperwork to the husband over email or something. And the husband filled it out and brought it with them to the session. And when the wife, and so the husband and wife both show up to the first session and the husband hands over the paperwork to the counselor and the counselor sees that it's signed by the husband and just moves on. And I just can't tell you how incredibly stupid this is. Again, I don't know if that's the case. Regardless of what exactly, how this played out, uh, it's clear from the brief that the wife did not complete any of the intake paperwork. And I know plenty of therapists who do stuff like this. And again, as I said earlier, the chance that anything bad is going to happen to you is pretty slim because most people don't complain against therapists and uh, it's, it's just a very rare circumstance. So, again, you could go your whole, whole career doing something like this, just having one person sign the disclosure statement and it never becoming a problem. But the thing to me is so, – so, so a lot of therapists are like, ah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I'm sure it's fine. And you're probably, probably right. But what I counter with is why are you taking the chance when it's so easy – to button this up. It's so easy. So, you know, again, in this scenario, and this happens to me, the husband will, the husband and wife show up to the first session, the husband hands me the paperwork and and it's all filled out by him. And I notice that and I say, Oh, I'm sorry. I I also need you wife to fill this out as well, because you're both clients. And I, and I explain that to them. I say, you are both my clients. Neither one of you is, has more rights than the other. Both of you have the same amount of rights. And if, Ever there's an if ever if any one of you asks me to do something like send a letter somewhere or something, both of you have to consent to that. And so, so I might even give an example. I might say, husband, if you ask me to write a letter to your work or something, uh, or whatever, uh, if your wife says no, I do not have permission to send that letter. Then I cannot send that letter. So both of you have to agree to that. The reason why I say this is for two reasons. One is is they need to understand that that situation. But two, I want them to trust me. I want them to know that I take confidentiality and ethics very seriously and that I would never do anything that they both didn't agree to. If I was a client that would make me feel better. That would make me that would make me feel like, "Oh, I have control over the situation and therefore I can relax a little bit and actually um, you know, feel safe enough to engage in therapy. And so right off the bat, the counselor makes this huge mistake that again, like I'm saying, a lot of therapists will do. And this is the sort of thing I rant and rave with my supervisees about is they will present, they'll be presented, as I was saying earlier, they'll present a case and they'll say, so I, you know, I'm talking, I have this family client or this couple client and blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, okay, who has signed the disclosure statement? And they'll say like, oh, well, I didn't do the intake. Someone else did the intake because it'll be at an agency or something. 
And I'll say like, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Just because someone else does the intake doesn't mean that you're off the hook. <laughs> you're, you're the therapist on record and therefore you, you're ethically responsible for making sure everything's done. The intake person is just doing a service for you. And if, and if they make a mistake, then you have to fix that. And so, so I'll say, you know, who's signed a disclosure statement? And, I'll, and they'll, they'll say, well, uh, the parent has. And I'll say, uh, why hasn't the child, why hasn't the grandma, why hasn't the ex-husband who has also been coming to therapy? And they'll say, well, they'll, they'll just look at me like, I don't know. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll say, well, you need to make that happen. One, because you need to cover your own ass. And, as, and since I am your supervisor, if you make a mistake, then I get in trouble too. So I'm telling you, make sure that everyone signs the disclosure statement. And also, why would you start treatment with someone without having them understand what they're getting into? You need to have a you know very brief conversation. It could be it could be thirty seconds long. It doesn't have to be a long conversation, but it has to be a very brief conversation. Which you talk with grandma, for instance, and say, "Look, so this is the first time I've met you, and I just want to make sure that we understand what we're heading into right now. I, I want to know from you, and this is what I say. This is what I tell people to say. As I say, okay, grandma." You, you know, I've been I've been meeting with your granddaughter and your daughter, who is the mother of, the, of your granddaughter. I've been meeting with these two people for the past five months, and I thought it'd be really great to have you in the session because I want to know more about what your perspective is. And maybe I can help you in terms of how you can support the family. And then I, I, I recommend people say something like, well, so before moving forward, I want to know what kind of person you are to me. And there's two kinds of people you can be to me. One is, is you can be my client, in which I, uh, ha- which you're a client just like anyone else in this family, which means you have all the rights thereof and everything. And it means that I can provide you with advice, or I can we can start to engage in some dialogue around what to do in this family and how I can help you. Essentially, by saying you're a client, that means you're hiring me or you're designating me as as a, as someone who is going to help you. The other option is you're going to be called a collateral contact, which means that I don't treat you, you're not a client, and you don't have any rights over the, the, the therapy situation, But and I can only listen to you. I can't actually help you. So collateral contacts are people like a teacher or someone's lawyer or someone's neighbor or something. You know, I don't know why you talk to a neighbor, but collateral contacts are, are people that are connected to the client that are giving you information, but you're not treating them. And a grandma could be someone like that. A parent could be someone like that. But so, you know, I'm sort of explaining this longer than it needs to be, but the point is, is that a very brief conversation can happen and, uh, and that it doesn't take that long to do is the point. It's pretty easy to do. And, client people that come into your office you need to do the courtesy by explaining to them what their situation is and whether or not they're a client or a collateral contact now what new therapists will say to me is well what if grandma says she doesn't want to be a a client what if she's afraid of being a client then i say well then why would you want her to be a client (laughs) if you suspect someone's going to be afraid of being a client then why would you trick them into being a client by acting like they're not a client and then not having them sign a disclosure statement. Uh, the other, the other thing is that they'll say is, well, what if, you know, what if they don't want to be a client? What if you explain to them that you can't help them unless they're a client and unless they consent to being a client, what if they're afraid of that? And they say, no, I don't want to be a client. 
Well, wouldn't you want to know that up front? That's what I always say. I always say like, if someone is so averse to being your client, wouldn't you want to know that right up front so that you could kind of scratch them off your list in terms of a person who you're going to have to work with? If someone is that hostile to being treated, then you don't want to be treating them because they're going to be really annoying to work with. <laughs> you know, the, the, the analogy I give is, imagine if a dentist walked down the street and just started pulling someone's tooth out without getting their consent to do so. Wouldn't a dentist want to stop and say, so ma'am, I'm a, I see that you have a rotten tooth. I'm going to pull it. Is that okay? And ma'am, and the woman says, no, I don't want you to pull that tooth. And the dentist says, well, I recommend that you allow me to pull your tooth because your tooth is going to cause some major problems in your mouth there. And the woman says, fuck you, you know, stay out of my mouth. Wouldn't the dentist want to know that prior to putting the pliers inside the woman's mouth? Well, the, almost exactly the same sentiment is true when it comes to therapy. You can't provide treatment to someone that doesn't want treatment. And especially if they're hesitant about agreeing to treatment, then you should definitely not engage in treatment with that person. Not only out of respect for human uh, you know, uh, rights, but also because you are in a, you know, you're setting yourself up for a big problem down the road if that person decides to put you in their crosshairs and make a complaint about you. Uh, if someone doesn't like you right from the start, it's better to refer them somewhere else than to, than to be entwined with their lives because it, it can make your life professionally difficult anyway. So right off the bat, the, ther- the counselor makes this mistake. The, the husband completed all the paperwork. The wife didn't complete any paperwork. All right. The couple had two joint marital sessions. During those sessions, it appeared that the wife was not interested in continuing in the marriage or working to repair the relationship. And so the, the couple soon filed for divorce. So again, just to uh, reiterate here, the, the couple had two marital sessions it seemed as though the relationship was already over. And just after those two sessions, the couple decided to start the divorce process. This is a a common enough situation that I've seen where couples will come in really as a last ditch effort. uh, And they'll, they'll be like, they'll both basically be in a position where they're not very hopeful about the relationship getting any better. And they're just, I don't know. I, I sort of see it like, and this is a this is a minority. Of, I actually haven't had a client like this in, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years. But occasionally I would get a client like this where they'd come into the office and I'd, I'd be trying to figure out how we're going to improve things and what they want to work on and what their goals are. And it just seems really clear to me that they're, they're not interested in, in making things better in their relationship. And I start to get that sense. And and I think what happens is, is, is couples will, you know, enter a bad number of years where they're really not feeling good about their relationship. And they might occasionally think about entering couples counseling, but they don't for whatever reason. And then they start talking about divorce and they start yelling at each other and they're seriously thinking about divorce. And then someone outside of the couple or maybe even them think, well, maybe we should go to couples counseling just just to see if it'll work. And when a relationship has gone that 
far south, it's hard to, you know, pull, uh, pull it out of the nosedive. Um, now, it's, it's a fine use of couples counseling because sometimes it's like, well, you might as well try. But as a, as a couples therapist, it can be kind of frustrating sometimes in that situation because you, you're trying real hard in the first few sessions. And what you don't realize is the couples counselor is that the, the situation was doomed years ago and, and you're just now, um, and, and they're acting like it's not doomed. And it can, so it can be, there's, it could be this kind of, this sort of disjointed situation. Having said all that, I'll tell you that I've worked with couples who will say stuff like this. They'll they'll come in and they'll be like, ah, I think things are done. And I have been able to pull people out of that. It takes work, but usually in those situations there's they're not as far, they're not doomed or they're not as far down the divorce road as as the couples I was describing earlier. There's there's still hope, there's still some well-being there. And I find that when they, you know, engage in therapy with me and they, they work hard enough. They, they can actually turn things around anyway. Okay. So they, they have two marital sessions. They file for divorce. Both the wife and the husband continued to see the counselor on an individual basis. The wife saw the counselor twice for individual counseling just during the divorce process. And the husband saw the counselor 13 times over the next three years. So again, the couple comes into two marital counseling sessions. They tell the therapist, look, I think we're going to divorce. We, we don't have the details as to how they made that transition from couples counseling to individual counseling. So let me talk about that for a second. It's, it's possible. There's a couple possibilities that I see are likely here. One is, is that the couple said we're headed to divorce, but we want to continue with couples counseling but is it okay if we might have a couple individual sessions just to kind of talk things out for a bit? So, so that's one scenario that might have happened. And the counselor might have been like, oh, okay, we're still, we're still in couples counseling, and I'm going to meet individually just maybe once or twice with, with each of these people, and then we'll return to couples counseling after that. This is within the standard of care with, within marriage and family therapy. I often meet individually with couples uh, and family members, particularly family members. I meet, if I have a teenager and parents, I will always meet individually with the, with the child and, and I'll meet with the parents alone without the kid there. Um, and then I'll meet with them all together at times as well. But the point is, is that uh, maybe that was what happened where it, it was presented as just a couple temporary sessions and then it, and then it just um, kind of uh, slipped into individual counseling because essentially what happened was the, the wife and husband had some, a couple individual sessions during the divorce process, but then the husband ended up seeing the counselor individually for a long period of time after that for, for three years, just 13 sessions, which isn't much over the span of 13 years. Um, another possibility is that the wife and the husband actually asked for individual counseling with the with the counselor and the counselor agreed to it the counselor said okay you know we'll transition into into individual counseling with the two of you um so so there's a lot of different possibilities here now f- f- there's a lot of uh, bad information about this out there i can't tell you how many times i've heard people say therapists couple and family therapists say that it's unethical to switch from 
couples counseling to individual counseling or vice versa to switch from individual to couple counseling. And that's just not true. There's, there's, I, I don't, you know, please, if anyone wants to refute that, please provide me with competent literature that can refute that. But there, there's no ethical guideline. There's no standard of care. There's no, uh, there's no book that I've written that will just from a reliable source that will just say that what, what, and the other thing is, is it's almost rare. It's very rarely commented on because it's kind of a rare instance in our field. And so, and marriage and family therapy is one of the smaller uh, professions within the overall field of mental health. And so it's, it's just not talked about, but let me tell you the answer to the question. <laughs> the answer is when we make any change in treatment, the pros and the cons have to be laid out for the client. And then the client gets to choose as, and then the client has to the, the therapist has to convey to the client exactly what they're getting into, depending on either option. Also, the therapist needs to weigh their own standard of care issues and their own risk issues. So, for instance, a husband and, and wife, so they're, they're about to go through this divorce, and, and somehow they ask the therapist, you know, we'd really like to continue individual counseling with you. Well, what I do in this situation and what I tell my supervisees to do is to slow down and to, to fully explain, perhaps even in writing over email or something, exactly what the pros and the cons are to this. And what I usually tell people to do and what I do is I usually say, look, you have to choose between one or the other people. So engaging in individual therapy with both people is actually uh, possible, again, if you lay out the pros and the cons. The pros, the pros to continuing individual counseling with a couple is that the, uh, the, the individuals will know that the therapist knows the situation fairly well. So, you know, the alternative is that both people find a new therapist, two different therapists, and they have to start over with those therapists. Maybe those other therapists aren't, aren't a good match for them. But at the very least, these new therapists don't know the situation as well as the current therapist does. The, the, another pro is that the, ther the therapist is in a position perhaps to broker some agreements between these two people uh, as they go through a divorce. Now, the con is that the, if, you, if you engage in individual, individual therapy with both people, the, the con, the, you know, the, the downside is that the, each individual client will perhaps be in a position where they're suspicious that the, that the counselor is sort of against them. You know, it's like, how can I really trust this person if they're also talking with my ex-spouse? So that makes it, that might harm the relationship and make it so that each person doesn't get proper care. Um, but the but the main problem here is they're heading into a divorce and a custody battle because there are kids. And so uh, as we've talked about before, counselors should avoid that. And any counselor who – so if I was presented with this issue, a couple comes to see me, and after two sessions they decide to divorce. And then they both come to me and say, we'd like to continue with you with individual counseling. Is that okay? And I, and I would very quickly say, actually, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And the reason why I would refuse to do it is because, one, they're heading into a divorce, which, as we've talked about before, 
is one of the most risky situations you can get into as a, as a counselor. If you're just meeting individually with one person and you started individually with that person and that person is heading into divorce, then you're then you're relatively low risk. But if you're an if you're a couples counselor and you and you transition to individual with one or both people and they're heading into a divorce and they're heading into a custody battle, then you are guaranteed to at least be considered to be in the crosshairs of either side that considers you to be a threat. Or either side will try to cajole you into participating in the in the legal proceeding. And so so I would immediately say no, uh, regardless of how much I cared about the situation or how much I felt bonded with one or both people. Um, I, w- I would just say no, because I, I, you know, 90% of the time this ends up being a problem. I just cannot stress this enough. I uh, supervisees will contact me or, or therapists will contact me out of the blue and, and say, I'm heading into a situation like this. Can you help me extract myself? And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with, with therapists, even experienced therapists, where we both conclude that if they had just terminated at this point, they could have avoided years of legal problems, years of sleepless nights. You know, why take that risk? And again, what you know, one that you you might feel like, well, there's some pros and cons here. The the other thing that I think that counselors fault the trap they fall into is they want money right you need clients to make a living and if you don't have enough clients then you're not making enough money and so they have a hard time letting go of these clients because they want the income which which of course makes sense but believe me the income is not worth the trouble plus when the shit hits the fan which it might you have to hire people like me who don't who are not cheap to provide you with expert consultation to help you extract yourself out of this situation. So it's just one of those situations that you just really just do not want to get into. It's so easy to tell a client like this to say, I'm sorry, I can't ethically do that. Here are some names of some therapists. I recommend each of you engage in individual counseling with a, with a different counselor. You don't want to have the same counselor. As you head into the divorce, you'll definitely want that for, for a number of reasons. It's not hard to send that email. And this, this counselor, so this is the second mistake this counselor made. The first one is he didn't have the wife fill out any of the in, intake paperwork, including the consent to treatment. And then he in, he engaged in individual counseling with both of them. Now again, I don't know the details. Maybe he late. Maybe he did all this. Maybe he laid out the pros and the cons. Maybe he had a whole written agreement about you know treatment plan changing or stuff like that. Uh, somehow I doubt it, but but uh, so I just don't know. All right. Throughout the course of their separation and divorce, the couple had difficulties determining the custody of their two daughters. So. Uh, he, that's this. That's what the brief said. Throughout the course of their separation and divorce, the couple engaged in what we call a custody battle over their two daughters. And I, as soon as I read this in the brief, I was like, no, duh. Of course that happened. It always happens. And it can get quite ugly. And therapists often erroneously get involved in this. Okay. Then it says, the husband reported to the counselor that the wife's behavior could become violent. Apparently, law enforcement was was often called. Okay, so this is another no-duh to me. Whenever 
you are heading into a custody battle, the the husband and ex-husband, ex-wife will start looking for reasons to attack the other person. And one of the most common things that people will turn to is is abuse of the children. The 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 now for for in some situations there's legitimate abuse happening. But a lot of times there's people who are essentially lying or they're biased or something and they're drumming up evidence to try to attack their ex-spouse to in order to fight the custody situation. And it's 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 just a sad situation all around because everyone suffers. The the parents suffer, the kids suffer, the legal system suffers, uh, the lawyers make a lot of money, so I suppose they're they're not suffering. Um so so yeah. The the husband starts to accuse the wife of being violent and and again in, in the brief it just very briefly says that law enforcement was called uh, often so it sounds like a concerning situation now was the wife actually being violent unknown was the husband not being violent unknown so it doesn't really go into that uh if i was to make a guess i would guess that the wife did have a problem but the husband was exaggerating it for to benefit him in, in his legal battle against her. And the, again, that's just a guess, because I've seen that so many times. It was either that or the husband was just making it all up because he wanted to attack his ex-wife. So I've certainly seen that. I, I, I cannot tell you the lies that I've seen spouses attack each other with in situations like this. They will come up with anything. And it's and when it comes to abuse, it's one of those things that it's he said she said. Especially if you can get the kids to corroborate your lies, which which totally happens uh, at times. And and I've seen fathers go to prison over this and then later be released because it was later found that the wife and the children were lying about the husband. Uh, essentially, what can happen sometimes is the the wife will be basically in control of the children and their minds, and she'll make the kids come up with sexual abuse allegations. They'll go to court. The husband will not only lose custody, but he'll, he'll also now in, be engaged in a criminal investigation and prosecution, maybe go to prison. And then at a later time, the child will step forward and say, actually, all that, I was lying. My mom basically just made me say those things when I was five. And I'm here to tell you, like, I knew at the time none of this happened. And then the father will be exonerated or something. Now, having said all that, there are plenty of cases where legitimate sexual abuse is happening. And the parent goes to prison in a very legitimate way. I will also say that the majority of abuse, particularly sexual abuse, goes unreported. So there's a huge problem with all that. So there, it's it's both and. It's all this stuff. There, you know, children can both lie about it and they can tell the truth about it and they can feel unsafe to tell other people about it. So all those are true, which doesn't make legal proceedings like this very easy. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a judge 
or a jury in this situation trying to determine whether or not something happened or not. It's just such a, it's all based on people and their report. There's no, there's rarely physical evidence. And so it's just one of those things. Now, okay, so getting back to this case, the, the husband starts to report to people that the wife could become violent and that the police were called sometimes. So some people actually emailed me about this the last time I talked about this. I can't remember the exact details of the emails, but basically in another uh, episode in which I was talking about something related to this, I, I was basically saying something to the effect of therapists need to avoid getting involved in custody battles and they need to avoid trying to save their clients from abuse and this kind of thing. And basically, the way that could be interpreted is I'm saying therapists should never advocate for their clients. You know, a, 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 let's say this husband in this case is talking to the counselor, and this husband is saying, like, look, counselor, I can't tell you how abusive my wife is. She beats my kids on a daily basis, and I'm terrified of her. My kids are terrified of her please, you have to do something about this. And essentially, in the past, my advice has been, as a therapist, you stay out of that. You just don't don't get involved. And the, the way that could be interpreted, and I, it, the way it was interpreted by some people who emailed me, was basically I'm saying that you should just let, you should just hang people out to dry, and you should not advocate, and you should just let it go. And in a sense, I am saying that. But there are options you can engage in to actually help. For instance, you can refer them to an outside expert who is expert in these kinds of things. So, so let's say in the sort of exaggerated possibility here, the husband comes to this counselor who later is being sued, but the, the husband is like, my wife is violent. My kids are terrified. You need, you need to help me. The, the counselor could say something like, I don't get involved in those kinds of things because I am your therapist, but there are experts in domestic violence, in um, you know, intimate partner violence. There are experts in, in those areas who can absolutely help you and are not your therapists. Because at this point, the counselor is still the wife's therapist, right? The, the counselor is the therapist to the wife, and the counselor is the therapist to the husband. So to engage in some kind of save, savior act with the kids and with the husband against this, this wife is a very weird position to be in, considering that the wife is also a client. But there are outside professionals who do not have that, that complication. So you could tell the husband, I care. I'm, I'm sorry I can't do anything because that's not my expertise or my role. And plus, the wife is a client of mine, so I, have, I, can't, um, I can't. There are certain limitations in terms of what I can do here. But there are, let me give you this hotline. Let me, let me even go there with you and we can you know, meet with that person. And um, well, maybe not go there with them. But anyway, you, you provide a very, a very pr- uh, sound recommendation and a very strong recommendation that they go reach out to the person. The husband could go to that domestic violence specialist, get advocacy, get help, get legal advice, get law enforcement to help them out, 
And you, as a counselor, do not have to be involved in that process. So just because you see a need does not mean you are the one to provide that that saving. If a client had a gallstone, you wouldn't proceed to engage in surgery on that client because you are not a physician. Just because there is something wrong or concerning in a client's life does not mean that is your job to fix it. If they were having trouble getting food because they lost their job and they didn't have enough you know, money to buy, to buy food, it's not your role to give them food or to give them money to buy food. It might be your role to refer them to the the state government so they can get food stamps. You know, you can certainly provide that recommendation, but it's not your job to do things that are outside of the job of being a counselor, which is to provide counseling. When you are providing counseling that has nothing to do with trying to save them from their own lives or trying to get them out of an abusive situation. Now, there are situations where counselors will definitely do advocacy work. For instance, let's say the husband here, let's say the wife never came into therapy and the husband just hired this counselor individually. Well, then you're kind of in a different situation. There's no conflict of interest there. You might be able to provide a little bit more advocacy because you only have contact with the husband and, and there's, no, there's no conflict of interest there. Anyway, I hope you get my point. So again, just, just to summarize there, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't care because you're going to care. It's hard not to care. Uh, and caring actually is a big part of having the therapy go well. I'm also not saying that you should do nothing. What I'm saying is that you should stay within your limitations and you should not set yourself up for a complaint or a lawsuit. There, why would you sacrifice your career because you have an impulse to save someone's life? Well, I guess maybe I should state, state that differently. What I should say is if you're going to risk your career and your license and your pocketbook because you might get sued. If you're going to take those risks, then you better understand, you better take those risks for the right reason. You know, there might be some situations where you're like, fuck it, man, I'm going to, I, I don't care if I get sued. I'm going to try to do something about this family or, or this client because it's the moral thing to do. Okay, fine. But if you're just advocating and are ignorant of the risks, and then there's something wrong with that. Or if uh, you know, if you became known of the risks and you still did, and you were like, "Oh, I want to avoid that," but you did it anyway, then there's something wrong with that. Um, and and there's also something wrong with counselors who think that they should be the only one to help somebody. You know, there's there's a lot of as I've been getting at, there's a lot of other professionals out there just waiting to help your clients with the things that they're suffering from. Why would you not engage with those other professionals? So you know, just. All that kind of stuff. Okay. So when the counselor was seeing the wife individually, the counselor wrote in his notes that he observed the wife to be very agitated in session. He also wrote that he informed the wife that she was presenting with symptoms of bipolar and borderline personality disorder. So this is kind of a side note. It's not super relevant to the case, but um, and essentially what was happening was, again, during those, so the, the counselor saw the couple twice, 
and then saw the wife twice individually and saw the husband individually 13 times over the span of three years. And during those two individual sessions with the wife, the counselor wrote that he was observing that the the wife is very agitated in session and that she presented symptoms of bipolar and borderline. And I just have to, I don't have any information on this. And if the counselor were here, maybe he would be like, no, you don't get it. You know, here's the data. It very much looked like bipolar. It very much looked like borderline. But whenever I see that as, as a statement of assessment, it's like, oh, it looks like borderline or, or bipolar. I, I always think the per, I, I immediately and judgmentally think that the person is, is sort of a hack because bipolar and borderline are extremely different conditions. And when you understand them well enough, you actually have an easier time detecting the differences. For instance, for me, when I assess people, I, it, I, I am almost never confused. I never, almost never confuse those two diagnoses. I, I almost never say, I cannot tell if this person is borderline or bipolar. Which one are they? I need more information. It, it, very early in the assessment process, I can tell the difference between these two because they're very different conditions. I think what happens is there's this sort of shorthand that's happening in our, in our profession now, which is if someone is very agitated and they're very upset or angry a lot and maybe even raging, there's this tendency to say like, oh, that's a hallmark of bipolar. And, ooh, that's a hallmark of borderline. And then a very quick thought goes into someone head, someone's head of like, oh, it's bipolar or borderline. And actually what a lot of people do these days is they go right to bipolar. They're just like, oh, it's, that's bi-. They're, they're very angry and agitated and seem you know, extremely energetic about their anger. Therefore, they're, they're bipolar. Without assessing for the history of the of of mania or the history of depression or other complicating factors like attachment issues or relationship issues that can, that can result in symptoms of mania or depression, but aren't actually mania or depression anyway. Okay. So uh, the other thing here is that she is going through a divorce process and a custody battle. And anyone who goes through that will tell you that, That'll be that's one of the craziest times of their life, and they can and people during a divorce can exhibit symptoms that can look like bipolar and can look like borderline, but actually aren't that. It's just circumstantial. It's sort of like imagine your husband dies, you're you're married to him for thirty years, and he suddenly dies in a car wreck. Well, how do you think your mood is going to be over the next six months? Do you think you might have some fluctuating moods? You betcha. Do you think you're going to get depressed sometimes? You betcha. Well, if someone assessed you during that time and just said, oh, this person is is bipolar or this person is depre- has major depression, and that's all they said about it, that would be a gross misunderstanding of the context, right? What What I would say in a situation like that is the person is exhibiting major depressive episodes, but but really what the cause here is that they are they are experiencing a normal reaction to the loss of the sudden death of their husband. And so uh, now you could still diagnose them with major depression. It doesn't preclude that uh, grief can result in major depression, but I hope you get my point anyway. Okay. So at one of the last counseling sessions with the husband, the husband asked the counselor to write a letter 
to his divorce attorney concerning his condition and how he was doing in therapy. So very common request from counselors. They will, you know, frequently make this request or from clients during, this is a very common request from clients who are going through divorce because attorneys, as you're going through divorce and, and custody battles, attorneys are always looking for data to help them. And, Often, for whatever reason, it helps in court if an attorney can stand up and say, my client has engaged in therapy in good faith to improve their situation and make them a better parent and all this kind of stuff. For some reason in court, that means a lot. Uh, I would argue that it doesn't mean that much because anyone can go to therapy. It's not hard to do. And anyone can lie to their therapist and anyone can sort of engage in a style of therapy that doesn't actually do anything. So just the fact that you went to therapy doesn't mean uh, really anything legally, in my opinion. But for whatever reason, attorneys will say, hey, you know, get your therapist to write you a letter saying that you've been working hard in therapy. Okay. Pretty standard request. Um, I sometimes refuse this request. I Like in a situation like this, if I might refuse, I might I might say like, well, I'd rather not write this letter because I, as I, because I, and I do say this at the beginning, I tell people I don't get involved in legal disputes. I don't get involved in people's legal problems from personal experience. I, I tell people that session one. So if I was meeting with this couple session one, I, even if I didn't know they were on the road to divorce, I would tell them, uh, I would, and it's in my disclosure statement too. I'll, you know, I'll say something, and this is actually kind of standard for a lot of therapists. They'll say things like, so just so you know, if you get involved in a, in a divorce or a custody battle and you request information from me or you request me to advocate for one of you, I will, I'm telling you right from the start that I'm going to refuse that. And it's nothing personal. It's just that I, uh, am, that's not my job. It's not my scope of practice. It's not my expertise. My expertise is to provide couples counseling. My expertise is not to assess who is the better parent or who's the better person or, or anything like that. So if you want that kind of service, you have to go somewhere else. So I say this for a few reasons. One is, is that I want to tell them right off the bat so that when and if I do have to refuse, they won't take it personally because I'll say, remember in that very first session when I said that, you know, it, that I would refuse? Well, I'm, I'm refusing it now. Um, the, other, the other thing that it does is it tells a couple, look, if you're looking for ammo against the other person, this is not the right place. You got to go somewhere else. And I've had couples do this before. They'll come to me and they'll sit down in my office and I'll give them that speech. And then they'll be like, well, maybe this isn't for us because in their heads, they're like, well, the only reason why I'm here is because I want someone to testify on my behalf. I want someone to observe my husband and how much of an asshole he is. And I want that person to go to court. And if you're not going to go to court, then I don't want to see you. And and believe me, you don't want to be with clients like that anyway, because all they're trying to do is manipulate you. And so, so I tell people that right off the bat. Most people are fine with that. But, um, but anyway, so... So the attorney asks the husband, and the husband asks the counselor, "Can I? Can you write my attorney a letter uh, stating that um, my discussing my condition and how I am doing in therapy?" 
So this is this again. This is pretty standard request, and it's and it's pretty low key. So all you, in this letter, all you'd have to do as a counselor would be to write my my client so and so has been engaging in, in has been engaging meaningfully in therapy over the past number of months from this date to this date, and 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 has had you know ten sessions or something. And that's all you have to write. And I've written that letter before. I, I keep it very short. You don't put in any opinions. You don't put any assessment. You're just you're stating very very innocuous facts. So the counselor in this in this case actually did agree, and he and he wrote a letter to the husband's attorney. The letter stated that the husband was doing well, but he was anxious and depressed over the custody battle. Okay, so there's a little bit of anxiety and depression mentioned in there. I wouldn't have included that because I, I wouldn't want because essentially whenever you're writing a letter like this, you have to interpret how the wife will interpret it and how the wife's in, in, a lawyer will interpret it. So if you keep it to the bare bone facts, the wife will not likely take an issue with the letter. But if you put in the letter, if you start putting in the letter other kinds of assessment bits, then the wife might consider you an enemy because because now you are trying to attack her uh, in in some way. You know, th- the fact that the husband is quote unquote anxious and depressed could be used against the wife because it could be implied that the wife is causing the husband's depression and anxiety. You know, so you just want to avoid those kinds of. Uh, it could you know it seems fine on the surface, but you always have to think okay, how is the wife? and the wife's attorney going to see this letter because I don't want to get in their crosshairs. Because again, it's not your role. Your role is to be a counselor and to help. Your role is not to provide forensic assessments for courts because one, you're not trained in that. Two, you can't do that because you were the counselor. You're the tre- treating counselors cannot provide assessments for courts. It's just that simple. It's a dual role. There are forensic psychologists who actually provide that service of assessing for reports to the court, and they never provide treatment. They just provide assessments. So you have to keep assessments and treating separate. Never the twain shall meet. Assessment, not for treatment, but assessments, meaning uh, forensic assessments that are sent to the court or something. Anyway, there are some gray zone situations, but I won't get it, go into that. Anyway, so the counselor wrote the letter. And it, it said that, um, uh, see, the, the, the letter also provided information regarding the individual therapy sessions with the wife. The counselor included a description of the wife's violent behavior as relayed to him by the husband. So the, so the letter states that the, you know, the husband's doing well, ex-husband's doing well, and he's been engaged in therapy. He's, a, he's depressed and anxious about the custody battle. And... I, I, you know, the counselor is also saying, I also want to mention that the husband has been telling me the following things. The husband has been reporting to me that his ex-wife is being violent. Okay. So again, this is mostly okay because the counselor is only reporting what was reported to him. And this is a classic thing that a lot of counselors will do. They'll say like, well, all I can do is report what the client told me. I wasn't there for the violence. So I, I could only say, uh, husband, ex-husband reported to me that ex-wife engaged in violent behavior, although I did not observe such behavior. Okay, so th- this is mostly okay, but again, you're you're just putting yourself in more of a position where the wife is going to hate you and look for reasons to sue you. Okay, and if you have anything wrong with what you've been doing, then you're going to get in big trouble. So this is when the counselor. 
really uh, screwed himself over by by saying this stuff. Again, under a lot of circumstances, there's there's not a lot of risk in writing that, but in this circumstance, there's a there's a huge risk. Um, so. Uh, so on the surface, it, again, it might seem like, well, you know, the counselor's just stating the facts. What's the big deal? But here's the main problem. Remember how I talked about in that very first session how the, how the counselor did not have both people sign the disclosure statements? Well, the, the counselor needs consent from both clients. So both husband and wife are clients. Both husband and wife have rights over the client file. Both husband and wife have to sign off on all releases of, of uh, patient health information. And, so, and what my guess is is that the counselor never really defined the difference between couple and individual therapy with these people. And so when the, when the husband says hey, counselor, can you write me a letter and send it to my attorney? And the counselor probably said, okay, well, I need, a, I need you to sign a release of information saying it's okay for me to talk with your attorney. The counselor never reached out to the wife and said, is it okay if I send a letter to the attorney? And, and also the, the counselor included information that even referred to the individual sessions with the, with the wife. I hope this is all making sense. If I had a whiteboard, I could write it all out. It would make more sense. But, but anyway, the, the, the counselor, so again, the counselor gets this request to send this letter to the attorney, and the, the counselor does not reach out to the wife and say, is it okay if I do this? This is a massive, massive problem. When you release information to people outside of the client system, which is the husband and wife, without consent from both people, that is a massive violation and, and there's no hope for you. you if, if, that, if anyone complains, you're done. And so, so let's see what happens. So two years after the counselor had written the letter, two years later, the ex-wife filed a lawsuit and a complaint to the state board of licensing against the counselor. So... It's interesting. I don't know what spurned that like two years later, but the, but that's another point here is that when you make a, an ethical or legal mistake, you can have a complaint waged against you years in the future. So even if nothing happens immediately and you're like, oh, good, you know, thank God that nothing happened there. Years down the line, if someone just decides they want to complain or years down the line, if, if they're told something like, hey, so let me get this straight your counselor sent a letter to an attorney without your consent, you know, did you know that you can actually sue that person? So if they don't know initially, they might find out down the line that they have the ability to sue you. And so anyway, so it's two years later, a, an expert investigated the case and concluded the following. So an expert does a investigation and concludes that the ex-wife was a client of the counselor and therefore the counselor deviated from the standard of care by writing a letter to the ex-husband's attorney. And the counselor failed to have the ex-wife complete all intake forms. So the expert found two violations. One was you, that the counselor sent a letter to the attorney without the wife's consent, and the counselor failed to have the wife fill out the intake paperwork and the disclosure statements and all that kind of stuff. 
The counselor was found in violation of his license. The state board decided to do the following. They provided a public rep- reprimand. They, in, in, they uh, applied a $500 penalty, and they required that the counselor engage in supervision by a board-approved licensed professional for two hours per month over t- 12 months, so 24 sessions of supervision. So this is a pretty common consequence. We've talked about these kinds of consequences before in other podcasts around these lines. There's seemingly recently there's there's often a public reprimand. I, I imagine this is to protect the public. It's to inform the public, look, this this medical professional has committed this violation and you consumers need to know about that because he might do it again. Or it might be an indication that there's something wrong with this guy, and so you need to know about that. Having said that, I can't imagine, I've never heard, or I've I've rarely heard of someone Googling their therapist along these lines. You know, say you get a referral to a therapist, how many of you actually look up on the Department of Licensing whether or not that person has had a violation or not? I mean, how many of you even know that you can do that or where to go for that, you know? So... The public rep- reprimand is uh, probably not that big of a deal and, and doesn't have that. It's probably very shaming to the counselor. But, um, so, and the other one is the, the small fine of $500. It seems kind of lame, just 500 bucks. It seems like there should have been a higher penalty for that. And also a requirement for supervision for a year. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a pretty good, pretty good consequence. The supervisor will be able to like really go over uh, exactly what the counselor needs to be doing and how to avoid those situations in the in the, in the future. They didn't they didn't require any continuing education. My guess is, is that the board figured that the supervision would cover the continuing ed, but they could have done that as well. All right. So in the legal proceeding, how much was paid out? Well, the legal expenses were about twenty three thousand dollars. That's it. So so. In terms of the the monetary penalty to the counselor, it seems that the counselor only had to pay $500 and then has to pay for 24 sessions of supervision, which will probably run him, I don't know, $3,000 or something. Um, and then the legal expenses are uh, from the malpractice is $23,000. So the, the malpractice insurance is out 23000 I believe, unless there was a deductible or something. Okay, so what's the moral of the story? Well... In the brief, they provided the following uh, morals of the story. First off, therapists and counselors need to know their scope of practice and practice within their scope of practice. In other words, treating counselors should not be providing assessments to courts because that is a whole other profession. You know, that's a whole other thing. Also, they're saying that counselors need to comply with the standard of care meaning that when you engage in couple counseling that switches into individual counseling, you need to provide the proper disclosures and blah, blah, You need to understand all the laws and regulations that govern client interactions. That's pretty obvious. They also say that you need to um, know that just because you don't know the law, that doesn't mean that you're absolved from responsibility. And they also say that you need to obtain the necessary releases of information which is a no-duh. All right, what 
I, I would add the following things. Each client needs to understand a number of things before beginning treatment. And each client needs to sign the disclosure statement and other intake documents, which again is a no da. But I know, I can't tell you how many times I've run into supervisees who do not do this. And I'll be like, how come? <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll be treating the, the, the family, say a mom and a child. And I'll say, did the mom sign the disclosure statement? And they'll be like, no. And I'll say, how many times have you met with the mother? And they'll say like, oh, you know, five times. And I'll say, are you providing advice? Are you trying to help the mother? And they'll be like, yeah. And I'll be like, so the mother is a client of yours, right? And they're like, um, I'm not sure. And I'm like, the, believe me, the client, the, the mother is a client of yours. You are helping her. And I'll say, do you have a disclosure statement for the, the mother? And they'll be like, no. And now, in those conversations, I'm not as condescending as I'm coming across right now. But I'm internally frustrated because every time I have a new supervisee, I go over this very simple concept with them. And again, I understand why supervisees will avoid this stuff. One is it's because their agencies actually don't care for whatever reason, which is just bizarre to me. The other is that some supervisor, some, some supervisees who are working at agencies, so a lot of the people, a lot of my new therapists that I supervise, I'm supervising them at my university in case consultation class, and then they're also being supervised at their site. And so their on-site supervisor might actually, some on-site supervisors actually will push back on this. They will say, no, you can't have the mother sign the disclosure statement because she's not the client. The kid is the client. And the, the intern will come back to me and say, you know, my supervisor said the following thing. In those situations, it's not the intern's fault that, this, that their supervisors are having a difference of opinion. So in those situations, you know, it's not – in that situation, we have to, like, figure out a, a solution between the supervisors. But, but anyway, that's another reason why they don't do it. Another reason that interns will not have the mother sign the disclosure statement is because I – this is me making a, a guess here or an educated guess, is that Supervisees worry that if they ask the mother to be a client and and explicitly you know ask it ask it in that way, the mother will say something like, "No, I don't want to be a client because you're not a good therapist." Again, <laughs> it's irrational, but there's this worry that if you actually inform clients of their rights, that the client will be like, "Oh, well, then I don't want you as my therapist," and because all interns be, uh, irrationally believe that they're terrible therapists and and that they not I mean not all but most believe me and they're just faking it that they're a therapist and I'm always telling them look you're a legit prof- medical professional and you need to internalize that you need to have confidence you need to stand tall you're a good person you've you've had a lot of education you're doing a great job you're not confident in your job and you'll be more confident in the future but you're a legit professional right now and and um Anyway, so um, so so like I said, uh, you need to have everyone understand who's the client, who the client is. You as you as a therapist need to. You, when I ask you who is the client, you need to have a very very quick answer to that question. What I see a lot of new therapists do is they're like, um, "Who's the client?" Uh, well, I guess the teenager is, and maybe the grandma. And I just find that to be incredibly hacky 
and incredibly irresponsible. If you don't understand, if you're a professional and you don't understand who the client is, if, if you don't even understand that very simple concept of who is the client, that is just a bizarre thing that you do not understand. Just bizarre. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other situations that psychologists will get themselves into where the client isn't even the person they're assessing. It's like, it's like the prison system is the client or a police officer is the client and the person you're assessing is not the client. And so I think psychologists have more practice in this because there's a lot more situations that they get into where the client is kind of hard to figure out. But I'm telling you, man, if you, for people who do a couple and family therapy, if you don't understand who the client is, if you can't answer that question very quickly, then you got a lot of learning to do because that is a, that is an obvious, simple question that you should have a very quick answer to. And it shouldn't, and it, and it, and it definitely shouldn't have nuance to it. You shouldn't be like, well, the mother is kind of a client. Like, what? There's no such thing as kind of a client. You're either a client or you're not. The person has either signed a disclosure statement and agreed to be a client or they have not. Anyway, ugh, you can tell that it's like I, I have this conversation so often. And part of my frustration, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, is that my super, the only reason why I rant and rave about the, this is my supervisees are often not understanding what I'm telling them. And again, it's a lack of education that they've had prior to me. It's a lack of support from their on-site supervisors. But my frustration is that I'll be working with a supervisee for six, nine months, and I'll ask them, okay, so who's the client? And I'll have all these hopes that they'll be like, Ding ding ding! That's the client, and it'll sound it'll sound sound, and it'll sound professional, and it'll be all buttoned up. But I don't know. Four times out of five, the supervisor will be like, "Um, who's the client?" And I'm like, "Ah, oh. <laughs> like <laughs> there's a lot of things that I don't mind if a supervisee doesn't get. You know, systemic theory." Systems theory is extremely complicated, and I, I never get frustrated with someone who doesn't get that. It took me years to understand it. Uh, certain theoretical orientations, how to apply theory to a client. These are complicated things. Who is the client is not a complicated question. So, uh, And especially after I have informed people. Now, maybe I haven't done a good enough job, which I should take responsibility for. But anyway, Okay. The other thing here is that I would add to the as a moral of the story is whenever you're changing modalities like from couple to individual therapy, you need to have a detailed conversation with a client and you need to have you need to lay out the pros, you need to lay out the cons, you need to document that conversation, and you need to consult with someone outside. Another moral of the story is never, ever, ever engage in risky behavior that you can avoid. Um especially when there's a custody battle. When there's a when there's a divorce, that's a, you know, that's a that's a risky situation. If you're involved with a client, especially a couple involved in a in a divorce, that's a that's a risky situation. If you're involved with a couple that is going through a divorce and a custody battle, you are almost guaranteed to be wrapped to be roped into that situation and you just really want to be careful about that, and you just want to be extremely buttoned up, 
document everything, and possibly consult with an expert. And the last moral of the story is never, ever, 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 ever submit something to the court or to an attorney without fully understanding the risk to your practice and without consulting with someone. If this counselor would have consulted with an expert uh, such as myself and said, here's the situation, da 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 I'd be like, do not send that letter, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I'd, what, what gain do you get from sending that letter? And they'll be like, well, my client asked me to send the letter. And I'll be like, well, one, what gain? I don't, I don't understand what, what you get out of this. And it, it's not going to do anything necessarily for your client. If your client's looking for ammo against his ex-wife, then they should go to another professional, someone who's not the treating counselor. And the second thing I would say is, do you have consent from the wife to send that letter? And that he'd be like, no, why do I need that? And I'd be like, well, is the wife could consider herself still part of the client system, which is legitimate. And without an, a release of information from her, um, I was recently hired in a situ- in a similar situation to this. And I came into it midstream and uh, this, this, fairly experienced counselor hired me uh, to, to help with a situ- situation like this. And I came in midstream and I discovered that she had already sent things out without consent from everyone in the client system. And we were in a very precarious situation because if the, uh, if the, you know, the injured party decided to complain or sue, they, the, the counselor who was consulting with me had no defense. The counselor had already made these. I mean, imagine you're in a situation like that as a counselor where you, you have released this letter and then later on you discover, oh my God, I didn't get a release from the wife to do this. And if the wife decides to complain against me, I have no defense. I have, there's nothing you can do in a situation like that. You're just doomed. And imagine being in those shoes. Imagine every night going to sleep going, I hope that woman doesn't sue me. <laughs> I hope she doesn't sue me. It's a terrifying situation. And it's so easy to avoid is the thing. All you have to do is either refuse to write that letter, which again, if you have that in your disclosure statement and or in that first session, you say, I am going to refuse writing a letter to any attorney, so don't even ask me. Um, or you say, okay, husband, I'll write that letter if your wife consents to this releasal. And the husband will be like, oh, you need to reach out to her? I'd be like, yeah. And the husband will be like, oh, well, never mind, because she's not going to agree to it. Um, now, some people will email me also and say like, well, wait, what if the court subpoenas you and you have to go in? Well, here's what you do. There are certain, there are certain situations where you can't avoid getting involved, i.e. a judge forcing you to come to court and testifying. In those situations, all you have to do is provide what is documented. Because as a, as a medical professional, as a mental health professional, you're not expected to remember every little thing that happened in sessions. And so really the only thing you can bank on is what's in your progress notes. And so, as discussed in other episodes, if your progress notes are sufficiently, um, you know, scrubbed of anything that's incriminating to anybody, but has enough information in, in there regarding treatment plan information, 
then all you got to do is go to court and just report what's in your file, which should have nothing in there that could be used as ammo against either person. You know, it'd be stuff like uh, session one with couple, discussed goals, went over disclosure, had both people sign disclosure statement, discussed the fact that I would never engage in legal proceedings and, and clients under, indicated they understood. Clients signed disclosure statement. We discussed treatment plan. Client ha- stated they both had a goal of clarifying their relationship, improving c- communication, and reducing conflict. We discussed how we discussed skills to communication to reduce conflict. End of progress note. There's nothing in that progress note that can be used against either person. And so you go to court and you just you just read that progress note and the you know maybe the lawyers say like well what what was talked about in that session and you're like I don't remember it was years ago because it often is years later that you actually get dragged into situations like this so it would be legit you wouldn't remember i mean how could you possibly remember i mean I, especially the further you get into your career it's impossible for me to remember exactly what happened in a particular session and so i i would be a lot of guesswork which isn't you know uh, legally important so or relevant or interesting and so so those are the times when all you have to do and and so so if you want to avoid court proceedings like the way I do then it's pretty easy all you got to do is follow a pretty simple procedure it's not hard is the thing you just have to have a system and you have to consult when you're confused having said all that i have actually talked about on this podcast how i used to go to court a lot it, the the times when I went to court a lot, it was because I wasn't testifying for one side or the other. I was basically on both people's sides. I was like on wife's side and on the husband's side. And I was just there to support and to kind of observe the situation because I needed to know like what was happening. And, and even in those situations, it was scary. Even when no one was attacking me. <laughs> And in those situations, the judge would attack me sometimes, which is a whole other factor that I just want to kind of throw out there, which is that you, even if you follow all the rules, you still can't necessarily protect yourself against a judge who decides to attack you for no reason, which, which ha- has happened, and it happened to me. Uh, judges are human beings who understand some things but have massive deficits in their understanding of things. I can't... I cannot tell you how true this statement is <laughs> and how how I it's how still surprising it is to me whenever I meet judges or talk with them it, it surprises me and but of but then I'm like well of course they're human beings it surprises me how ignorant they are about things they they know about some things they know about procedure and law and that kind of stuff but when it comes to like things that you would think they would know about, they don't necessarily know about. They don't necessarily know about mental health. They don't necessarily, their their understanding of mental health might be the same as anyone else. Their understanding of, of our profession, of how family therapy works might be no different from anyone else. And they might be prone and, and in my experience can be very prone to the exact same misconceptions that anyone else can have. They might have, very limited to no understanding regarding bias or multiculturalism, uh, cultural relativism. In fact, their profession kind of discourages that because the law needs to uh, or likes to think of themselves as beyond culture, right? Which, of course, is ridiculous. Nothing is beyond culture. And um, anyway, 
I don't know why I'm hacking on judges. The point is, is that judges are wonderful people. They're smart, but they're human beings, and there's no way they're going to know. They're, they're not perfect human beings, but we kind of require them to be perfect human beings. Anyway, so that's that case, people. Just yet another case in which a counselor makes some very common stupid mistakes. And, uh, I mean, how many other times had, had this counselor made these, these mistakes? My guess is, is this isn't the only time. My guess is this counselor routinely did not have everyone sign the disclosure statement. My guess is this counselor routinely, or at least occasionally, would send letters to attorneys without getting everyone else's consent. My guess is is this counselor wants to help in these legal proceedings and doesn't understand that that they're taking a huge risk and that they might not even be qualified to do such a thing. But this one time, there was a complaint waged against them, and they were hung out to dry because they had no defense. And um, so there's that. The other thing that I... I want to emphasize is that to avoid all these problems, the counselor, all they had to do was a few simple things. And again, just to reiterate, have the wife signed a disclosure statement, not hard to do. That's a, that can literally take three seconds. I mean, please sign this. Okay, we're done. (laughs) Um, Now again, the wife has to read it and all that kind of stuff, but they can do that at home. The other thing is, um, is to say, I, I don't, get involved in legal proceedings. And if you ever ask me, I will, I will only do so under duress or if I'm you know, legally required to do so. The other thing is when the husband asked him to write a letter, all he had to do was say, sure, after I get wife's consent. Wouldn't take long um, to say that. So pretty easy, th- tiny little things that could have been established and that would have saved him, but he didn't do those things. All right, well, let's end this episode by giving out some patron swag. Okay, first let's give out some swag to some new patrons. We have patron Lorelai from Texas. Uh, from, from the onset here, I, I, I want to give out a bunch of swag because it's been a while since I, I, I had a sort of plan to do it every week, but sometimes I forget, so I, I'm just going to send a whole bunch of swag right now to patrons. Um and also, as I've said before, I have no system of remembering who I sent swag to. And so I might end up following the same procedures of figuring out who to send swag to, which means that some of you might get swag like multiple times <laughs> because there's not that many patrons. Plus, I, I'm really going with like people who upload pictures of themselves to Patreon so that, I don't know, it's just, it's always great to have a face with a name. And so... Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I should probably should write down the name so I don't send the same swag or there should be maybe some way on Patreon to like designate who got swag. But anyway, um, so there's that. But anyway, so these people I know I haven't sent swag to because these are new patrons, uh, patron Lorelai, uh, see your picture there on Patreon. We got patron Andreas from, uh, DK. Is that Denmark? It's probably Denmark, right? Yeah, Denmark. Patron Andreas from Denmark. We have patron Rachel from Georgia. Patron Rachel, looking good there. Looks like you're in your with your partner. Both of you are smiling somewhere somewhere nice. Patron Emma from Lacey, Washington. Thanks so much for becoming a patron. We got patron Crystal from WI. Is that Wisconsin? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, that's Wisconsin. 
Uh, and patron Crystal has a humorous picture of herself in a like a face mud mask, and she has a mug that says "Big Hug Mug." Big Hug Mug. <laughs> so thanks, patron Crystal. That's pretty funny. Uh, who else here? Okay, let's maybe go to some older, uh, some long-term patrons here. Um, who do we got? We got, well, Lyndon. I, I don't know if I've sent any swag to famous patron Lyndon. By the way, everyone should join the the uh, Facebook fan group in which famous patron Lyndon moderates. He always, yeah, I think he just posted something about movies or something that he he's he's always um so there's lively conversations over there at the fan group i don't go there uh, only occasionally i sort of dip in there i don't know once every couple of weeks when i get a notification that interests me but um i just want you guys to be able to have your own lively conversations and complain about me as much as you want um and we got patron emily who goes way back to the very beginning of us having patron patreon stuff she is from uh, Massachusetts, patron Emily. We got patron Caitlin from New York. Again, I might have already sent you guys stuff. We got patron L from Berkeley, California. Uh, looking good in your photograph there. We got patron Hannah from Virginia. And I will uh, be sending you... Patron Hannah goes way back. I bet you anything I've sent patron Hannah uh, swag before. Because <laughs> I've probably done this exact same system before. But anyway, um, I'm going to do that regardless. Um, okay, so those are the people. Also, I should mention that Katrin, Patron, Patron, Patron L is on Patreon, and it looks like she's trying to. So she's like me in terms. You know, she's asking people to become patrons of hers, in which she's a graphic designer. She looks like she draws some really great. Uh, a cartoon kind of looking stuff there, which is awesome. So become a patron of L on Patreon. That's pretty cool. Anyone else doing anything? Um, yeah. Any of you patrons who want to plug anything, let me know. If you just want to email me, look, I'm writing a book or look, I have a Patreon page or I have a YouTube channel. I want people to look at, um, you know, I will definitely plug it. I want to support you as much as you support me. Uh, what else can we talk about? Also, if you can review us on iTunes, that'd be pretty cool. Also, we're very close to meeting our next goal. And by the time this is released, we might have actually reached it, which is, uh, we want to reach our next Patreon goal so we can start donating to PetFinder. Um, so that will be pretty cool. Also, someone asked if it's okay if they become a $10 patron, because there's basically two two levels. There's the $5 level, there's $20 level. And they said, you know, I, I don't want to go all the way to 20, but can I do 10? And the answer is, yeah, you, all you have to do is on Patreon, you just have to enter your own number. You can, you can, you can be, uh, you can, you know, pledge however much you want to every month. It doesn't have to be five or 20. It can be whatever you want. So you can, um, so just know that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that does it for that long episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Uh, I don't just say that as a sign-off. I mean it from the heart. You do. And I do. We all do. <laughs>